Well, good morning, Foothill. Good to see you all here. I'm Pastor Chris, and welcome over at Grand Avenue. Uh, if you are new today, especially over at Grand, and you're seeing me on screen, you're like, what's this all about? This is actually live. You are seeing me. It's happening right now. We're just around the corner at our baseline campus, and we did this because as the church has grown, we can't fit into one facility, and so technology allows us to link together, and so somebody's here about half the time speaking live over there, half the time speaking live, and so wherever you are, we're glad you're here. Uh, welcome to Foothill Church. Let's grab our Bibles and go to Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 10, and uh, we're going to look at a fascinating um, passage of Scripture this morning that may be so fascinating, some of you will be tempted to get carried away with it, and I don't want you to do that, but I think you're going to see it's a very encouraging uh, passage to see uh, what God does in this. Um, so remember, Daniel is all about uh, people living in exile, right? We've said since the beginning that Daniel's a very practical book. As much as you may say, well, I don't know about that, verses chapter 7 through 12 seem really difficult to me, and yet the main message we're learning even through those chapters is that God is sovereign. So for those of us who are living and feel like we're on the outside looking in or the culture is not no longer or becoming increasingly hostile to our values and to biblical values and biblical truth, that the Bible has something to say about that, and Daniel especially has something to say about that and is meant to help us in times like that. And Daniel 10 is no different. Daniel 10 is meant to be very practical and help us to understand some things. In fact, I would say to this, that Daniel 10 is really helping us in some ways answer or look at this question, what's really going on in our world? How, what, am, what am I supposed to discern out there? What's really happening and why are things the way they are uh, in our world? Daniel 10 is going to help us get to the bottom of that, okay? Now, how would you answer the question, right? If you said, what's wrong with the world? You might say, well, it's poverty or it's a lack of education or it's disease. If we could get rid of those things and everything would be okay. And Daniel 10 is going to challenge you like a Christian worldview will challenge you and say, that's not, that's not really, there's something even underneath all that. That's, that's the, the, the matter with our world, something that's going on that's sort of sinister behind the scenes uh, that many of us, most of us, uh, uh, cannot see. And Daniel 10 is going to pull back the curtain on it. But there's some very practical things that I think Daniel wants us to learn, that, that the Bible, God wants us to learn through Daniel 10 as we learn how to live our lives as exiles. And so uh, we're going to kind of bounce through this passage a little bit, but I'll try to kind of help you see how it all fits together. Uh, but there's several things that I want you to see. All right. And the first thing is this, that prayer in the Christian life is far more important than you think. Okay, so let's start reading in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Now, here's what's happening in Daniel chapter 1, or in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 10. He's, he's throwing us back to chapter 1 and giving us sort of this time marker. Remember, I'm the Daniel that back in chapter 1 was brought out of Israel in exile. They renamed me Belteshazzar. And the time that this is taking place, now this meaning chapters 10 through 12, the time that this is taking place, he says, is in the third year of Cyrus. Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Cyrus, king of Persia, is a historical figure. You can look him up in history books, right? But here he is. He's the king. He's ruling over this Medo-Persian empire, large empire in those days. Daniel has made his way up in government, and it's happening in the third year of his reign. Now, that's important because if you read your Bible, you're going to get to a place, a book called Ezra, another one, Nehemiah. And in Ezra, you find out that in the first year of King Cyrus, the first year of his reign, um, he issued a decree. And Ezra goes, in accordance with what the prophet Jeremiah said would happen many, many years ago, after the 70 years of captivity are up, Cyrus would issue this decree. Well, he does it. In Ezra, he issues a decree and tells the Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding your city and start rebuilding your temple. Okay, so that happens in the first year. Now we're in the second or the third year, and so they're now back. Daniel isn't with them. Now why? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us why Daniel didn't go back. We know that this is probably somewhere around 535 BC, and most scholars believe that Daniel was probably around 85, 86 years old. That could be a reason. 
right? This is not just hop on a plane and go to a city many thousand miles away. This would be, you'd have to take a very arduous journey. And for an 86-year-old man, that would be a very, very difficult thing to do, right? There's no medical care to stop on the way like we could have today. No, he's, he's an older man, and maybe that's why he can't go. But whatever it is, Daniel stays behind, and, and uh, as you're going to find out, he begins to pray. So in fact, let's keep going. Look at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat, wine entered, no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris, I looked up, uh, I looked up, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a man. And we'll talk about him in a moment. Okay, so let's just stop right there just for a second, just to make sure we understand what's happening. Okay, so Daniel says, something's gone on. This is when it occurred, and this is what happened. And I was so upset by something that it caused me to basically go on a limited fast. So he didn't fast all food, but for three weeks, he didn't eat any you know, any of the fine, drink any of the fine wines or the fine meats or things like that would have come from the king's palace. He did like he did in chapter one. And so I sort of reverted back to this place where I needed God to do something big. What's happening? Why is Daniel? And then he says, I, I didn't anoint my body. I'm in a dry desert climate and I'm not gonna do any of the fineries that sort of make me look okay. I'm, 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 I'm seeking God. And this is an intense time of mourning, fasting and praying. What's going on? Well, again, historically speaking, what's happening is that the Jews under, you'll find out in Ezra, under Cyrus, they go back to, the, to, to Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild, and almost immediately they're faced with opposition. And the opposition is so intense that it actually shuts down building, and they don't do anything for 15 years. Well, this is, this is, Daniel remembers that God, you promised to take your people after 70 years, put them back, and you would restore Jerusalem. You'd restore it to some of its glory. And, and now here we are, and your agenda, God, is going down the tubes. And it troubles Daniel so desperately that he goes into this intense period of, of mourning and fasting and praying. Nehemiah is going to do the same thing. Like many years later, under, under Artaxerxes, he's going to hear the news and say, man, this is terrible. And he mourns and he weeps and he fasts and he prays, God, something is happening. What you want done in the world is not being done. Your will is not being done. Your kingdom is not coming in this world as it is in heaven. And so I'm crying out to you, God, and I, I want to see you do something. So then he prays. And he prays for 21 days. Now, I want to skip forward, and I promise you I'm going to uh, you know, explain to you what happens in the intervening period. But go down, go down to, to verse 12, okay? Daniel prays. A guy shows up. We're going to talk about this guy in a moment. But here's what he says. He says, this, this man speaks up and says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself, right? So his posture of humility and mourning and fasting and praying before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, just pay attention to that. We heard your, your words, Daniel, on day one. I know it's 21 days later, but, but things started moving in heaven on day one. But, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Okay, so he gets this answer. The angel comes and says, here's what's going on. I'm going to explain who the prince of Persia and Greece and all this stuff is happening. But he says, here, I'm, I'm coming with the answer. But he says, I came, Daniel. Your words were heard on day one. And now I'm here because of your words. Now, this just emphasizes something we've said over and over again. The Bible will say to you over and over again. That, that the, the angelic visitations, we're going to see here in a moment, and the, the answer to prayer would not have come without prayer. It happened because Daniel prayed. Daniel prayed, and this man shows up, and we'll see who he is in a, in a moment. Now, 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 why does God do things this way? Why does God not just do it, right? Why do we have to pray? Why does God seemingly as you look in Scripture, pick the most inefficient way, it seems to us, 
Like you, you know, right? You, you know there's a problem. You, you could just snap your fingers. You, should, you could say a word and everything would be right. Well, I think the only indication the Bible gives us is that for whatever reason, God condescends to say, I want to use you. I actually want you to understand that the means to my ends, that the things that I intend to do, Chris, Foothill Church, Christian, the things I intend to do will happen because you're praying. I actually am going to involve you. This means that your prayers really matter. Like they actually change things. Your prayers move the gears of heaven. Can we say it this way? And this is what Daniel does. And he goes, I started crying out. I had no idea what was going on, but I prayed and it mobilized angels. It got the gears of heaven moving. I think God wants to say, look, this is what happens. There are things going on that you will never know. There are things happening behind the scenes that you will never be made aware of, but this is what's going on. But I think the other reason God does it like this and he does it in such inefficient ways, at least it appears to us, is to teach us to persevere. I mean, how many of us just, we talked about it last week, just give up, right? I mean, well, I prayed. I prayed for a couple of days. God didn't do anything, so I guess God doesn't answer prayer. Daniel prays. Daniel doesn't just pray. He agonizes, it seems to me, for 21 days. Now, there's nothing magical about 21 days, but when's the last time you said, there's this thing, there's this big thing that I see of God's agenda that is not, I look at a, a family member who is outside of Christ. I look at something where I say, this is not a God's will. This is not what should be happening. And I plead with God intensely for that amount of time. Very few of us, right? Very few of us have ever done anything like that. Jesus teaches in Luke 18. It says he, um, he taught his disciples this parable. He says, like, and, and, and Luke makes a point of saying he, he taught them this so that they would pray and never give up. And he talks about how we have to persevere in prayer. Prayer many times. There are some times when God graciously, boom, I prayed once and God answered. There's other times when God says, you keep coming, you keep coming, because that perseverance, right, that's going to produce endurance and all these kinds of things in you, and you're going to see it, and we're, I'm going to do it, but, but it may not happen on your timetable because I want you to persevere. I want you to keep trusting me. I think this is sometimes why God works this way. So see, this is, this is, prayer is more important than you think. But the second thing I want you to see is that the unmediated power of God is more devastating than you think. Now let me, let me explain what I mean by this, right? There is any, any encounter you've had with God has been, un, has been mediated, that is, there's been something, right? You encounter him through scripture, through the pages of this book. Or, you know, I'm not saying, God, you have never felt the presence of God, let's say, and say, man, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I, I feel like the Lord is comforting me or something like that. Or he's used someone else to speak words of comfort or encouragement or even rebuke into your life. That's what I mean. That's a, that's a mediated power of God. But the unmediated, that is the unmasked power of God is not something that we go, yippee, I'm sure glad that happened. It is devastating. And this is throughout Scripture, and this is what happens here. So let's go back to chapter 10, verse 4. Now watch what happens here. He says, on the 24th day of the month, I've been praying for three weeks. On the 24th day of the month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man. Now stop right there just for a second. You ever, you, ever, you ever walked into a room and like somebody was there, a spouse, a, a child or whatever, and you absolutely didn't expect to see him. You're like, whoa, whoa, okay, sorry, I did not expect to see you, right? Just imagine, Daniel, Daniel's out on the banks of the Tigris River. Nobody's out there. I'm just praying. I'm seeking God. Maybe he's just walking along and crying out to God. Nobody can see him. And maybe he looks like a madman if they could. But oh Lord, I'm just pleading with you on behalf of Jerusalem. Oh Lord. And he turns around and bam, there's this man. 
And Daniel then begins to describe this man. Now listen to his description. And behold, a man clothed in linen. Okay, so let's get the picture in our head. So, so probably a robe. Think of like a linen robe. And linen would have been, the high priests would have worn linen, we're told, if you read your Old Testament and, and how they dress them. And then it said he had a belt of fine gold from Uphaz. Now, now let, me, let me just stop here for a second. Daniel has never seen this before. He's never seen this before. He will likely never see this again. And what he is gonna do, his, his level best is to try to help you and me picture in our mind's eye what he actually saw standing before him. All right, I'm gonna try to explain to you the impossible. I'm gonna try to explain to you the glory, the, 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 this image that was standing there in front of me. This is amazing. And so he says he's got this belt. Now, what's the belt? So what would happen is they would, if you, if you go back to that day, so you'd be, you'd be wearing your robe around, if you will. You've seen the long flowing kind of traditional garb of that period. That would have been it. But if you, if you needed to move somewhere fast, if you needed, if you were a soldier getting ready for battle, you would take that robe, you'd literally pull it up between your legs and you'd tuck it into the belt. Okay, so, and this is gonna explain some things because Daniel's gonna see his legs here in a moment that he wouldn't see if it wasn't pulled up like this. Here's, a, here's if you will, a warrior. And he sees this gold belt. I don't know if this is chain mail. Hard to know exactly what's happening, but he sees this gold belt wrapped around him. And he says, he says his body was like beryl. Now, I bet you very few, unless you're a gemologist or you know something about, you know, geology or something, we probably don't know what beryl is. Okay, if you think of, think of, um, think of a diamond, think of a, um, oh, I don't know, uh, an emerald, uh, something along that kind of class of gems, this is the idea, maybe this, because there's actually brown beryl, um, and, it, and it has more of a, of a uh, if you will, a skin tone, but it's a, it's a, um, a gold-like, or it can be, the color can be a gold-like gem material. So he's like, so I'm trying to describe his body right now. His body is like a gem, and it's like barrel. I mean, it's like, this, it's like I'm seeing this gleaming body that looks like it's made of a gem. It's this, this hard substance. And then he says, I look, and... His body's like barrel. His face is like the appearance of lightning. Now, what is that? What does that look like? Here's a, here's a man, I can't, like, is that a flash of brightness? It's like, I can't, I can't look at it. It's like the sun. It's hard to know what he's seeing right now. And then he says, in his eyes, his eyes were like flaming torches. I mean, just picture this. You look up, right? And it's our human instinct to look at somebody in the face. He looks up and boom, there he is. He's sort of following his body up and boom, I see this and I don't know what to do with that. He's got a face of lightning. He's got eyes like flaming fire. What is he seeing? Like this is an unbelievable being that is standing in front of him. And I think then, think of what's happening now. You look up, this is what you see, and you, whoa. And he looks down and he says, and then I see his, his, his legs are like the gleam of burnished or polished bronze. Like, this is mighty. Right, there he is, and it's just like this etched man standing in front of him. And then he says, and his words like the sound of a multitude like a huge, massive crowd. When he would speak, it was like it was a crowd speaking in unison. Imagine standing in the middle of the Rose Bowl and the stadium is filled and every one of those people speak to you in unison. That's the words of a multitude. This, I mean, just be this, whoa, like face-peeling thing to hear him talk. Now, what would you do if you saw this being? Right? Hey, buddy. What's up? <laughs> right? God's my, my buddy. His power is just sort of my pal. Verse 7. 
And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm alone now, right? They can't see him, but they can hear. They know something is going on right now. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. And watch how many times now Daniel says, no strength was left in me in one way or another. No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now, that's how you respond. When you see an image like that, right? It's not, hey, high five, fist bump. This is, I'm on my face. I fall to the ground. My face is in the dirt, and I am like comatose. I'm catatonic. This is, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, let me pause here. Who is this man? We don't know. Some people think, oh, this is a Christophany. That is that Christ, this is him revealing himself in the Old Testament. I don't think it is. And the reason I say that is because this man is going to talk later and Daniel's able to stand in his presence, but he, he, he also talks about being sent. And there's some things that I would say, this doesn't make sense of, of God, very God, Jesus being the one who's saying these things. It seems to me that if Jesus is the one fighting, as we'll see in a minute, it's game over, right? But, this is, but this, is, this is somebody who comes from the presence of God. This is the power of God unmasked to somebody. And so let's keep going. He says he, says he, he, says he in verse 10, if we, if we turn over, it says, and behold, a hand touched me. Okay, now remember where Daniel is. He is lying face down in the dirt, He's catatonic. He can't move. He's, he's like, he doesn't know what to do. He falls asleep. He's in a coma. I don't know what's going on here. He's utterly terrified. And he says, behold, a hand touches me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. The farthest Daniel can get up in the presence of this, this being is I can get up as far as my hands and knees. Can you picture this? And I'm trembling. Like, I'm just shaking. I, I don't know what to do. And this is, this is this being that's in front of me. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, don't you love this? Oh, man, greatly loved. What do you need? Like, you're going to see this over and over in Scripture, that when the power of God shows up, people need to know he loves you, or you'll be devastated. You'll be utterly undone. And he says, God, this is the message to you, Daniel. You're greatly loved, Understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. That's a command. Now, can you imagine this warrior being standing in front of you with a face like lightning, eyes like, like flames of fire, this body that he has, and he says to you, when he says to you, stand up, what do you do? Yes, sir. Right? So Daniel tries to stand up, right? Right? Then I stood, when he had spoken this word to me, I stood trembling. Like, okay, but I cannot look you in the face. And then he says what we talked about earlier, fear not, Daniel. Easier for you to say, right? <laughs> From the first day that you set your heart, and it begins to tell him what happened about the princes and all that. Now skip down to verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to the words, I turned my face to the ground and I was mute. I had nothing to say in return that there was nothing, there was no give and take, this was not an exchange, it was not a chat between me and this powerful being sent from God. And behold, one the likeness of the children of men touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him, you see what's happening? So maybe some other cherubim, some other angel had to come along like they did in Isaiah and touch his lips so that he could even open his mouth. This is how utterly undone he is by this power that's in front of him. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. There it is again. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is in me. I mean, this is a breathless statement. Oh God, I can't. I, right? I mean, I'm, just, I'm panicking right now, and you want me to talk. Please don't make me talk. I, I can't do this. 
And then you keep going. Again, one having the appearance of man touched me. And he had to say it again. Oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. So that has to happen. If you're going to stand in the presence of God, then you're going to have to have strength. I mean, this is, Ray Ortland calls it, calls it nuclear power in a paper bag. To put nuclear power in a paper bag, you better strengthen the paper bag. Like this is, this is something that cannot hold, right? It's, it's not going to work, so I have to be strengthened. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I'll return and fight against the prince of Persia. And we'll get to that in just a second. Okay, so you see what's happening? This is a, an absolutely, Daniel is encountering the unmasked power that comes from God. And it's not cheerful. And it's not wonderful. It's devastating. This is the unanimous testimony of Scripture. That to come into the presence of God is a traumatic experience. And you're going to see this. You'll see it in Isaiah. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And all I could say is, woe is me, I am undone. I fell on my face. Ezekiel talks about how I fell on my face. When God appeared to me, he had to lift me up by his spirit so that he could speak to me. Zachariah in the temple, the shepherds, we got paintings of the shepherds, you know, this, ah, the shepherds looking up at the angels in the sky. Isn't this wonderful? No, the Bible says that's not at all how it happened. It says the angel of the Lord appeared. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. And the King James Version says, and they were sore afraid. They were terrified. So this is God. This is not, see, there's people in our culture who would want us to believe that, you know, angels are just our friends and we just chat with them, this kind of new age idea. I've got my angel, you've got yours. I pray to them, we talk to them. They just kind of walk through life with me and, you know, God's this way and, you know, and, and, and then they mix the two and then you get the God of the shack and you get a God that just kind of chats and does what you want and it's just so friendly and wonderful. That is not the God of the Bible. Is God good? All the time. Is he terrifying? Yes. So much so that he says to Moses, Moses, I know you want to see my face, but let me tell you what will happen to you if you see my face in a mortal shell. It will incinerate you. This is who I am. Some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't, you should. There's this great moment in, in, uh, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the Pevensey children finally make it into Narnia, all of them, and they, they go in through the wardrobe, and some of the first characters they run into are Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. This is a children's book, so it's, like, it's going to be real literal. They're beavers. So they're called Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. <laughs> and... Uh, they begin to chat with them about, hey, what's this Narnia? What's going on here? This is crazy. Like, it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. There's this horrible white witch who is now sort of overlord over this land. And she's, she's the one who's causing all of this havoc. And she brings victims into her palace and she turns them to stone. And their brother Edmund has been taken captive. And they're wondering what is going on. They say, oh, but there's good news. Aslan is on the move. Who's Aslan? Oh, he's a lion. You've never heard of Aslan? He's a lion. And he's going to come, and he will set all to rights. And you're going to meet him, they tell him. <laughs> and of course, the, the children are like, we're going to go meet a lion? Okay, that, that makes me kind of nervous. And Mrs. Beaver says, well, it's good. You, yeah, you should be nervous. And she says this. She says, if there's anyone who can stand before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Later on, in that same conversation, they're talking to, and Mr. Beaver pipes in, and he starts talking about, oh, he's the Lord of the, he's the king of the, of the, of the, of the, of the, of the woods. He's, he's, he's the, the Lord of everything. And they, of course, he's the Jesus figure in this whole thing, right? And he says, and he's coming. And, and, uh, and so they said, well, I'm a little bit nervous about meeting a lion, and is he quite safe? I think Lucy says, and, and of course, he has this very famous response where he says, of course, he's not safe, but he's good. 
And then they get worried because they think, well, maybe, well, maybe this white witch who is the overlord of this area, maybe, maybe she in her power will turn Aslan to stone. <laughs> and Mr. Beaver just scoffs. Turn to stone. If she can stand on her own two feet and look him in the face, well, the most she can do and more than I expect of her. That's his response. That's good theology. That's the kind of idea that we have about God. Now, why is that important? Well, why, why is it important for, for us to sort of look and see what Daniel faced and see this unmediated power of God and all this and see this kind of, this raw, like this traumatic experience? Because I think, on the one hand, we need to be terribly sobered about our overly flippant idea of God. And it will humble you before the might of God. But I think the other thing it does is it ought to, I think, Christian, this ought to be terribly encouraging for people living in exile. That if this is a messenger of God, what kind of God do we serve? If this is the kind of thing that gets loosed when I open my mouth in prayer, what kind of power is there behind prayer? What can stop this one from, from, what can stop God from doing anything he wants? What's the answer? Nothing. So it's devastating, but it ought to encourage us as people who have never had to experience, will never go through the trauma of that most likely, that this God is on our side. But here's one more thing. Spiritual warfare is more real than you think. Okay, now, now, now let's just kind of cycle back through and remember what's happening. So there's Daniel, and he's praying, and he says, he gives us a little summary in verse 1. He says, I, I, this, this, this vision, this word was revealed to Daniel, and he says, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And so he says, I pray. And as I fasted and prayed, I turned around, there's this man standing before me, this mighty warrior of a man. And he begins to say, and said, Daniel, from the first day until now, when you started praying, man, the gears of heaven started moving, verse 12. Then he gets to verse 13, and he says something very mysterious. He says, Daniel, man, I started charging towards you the day you started praying. I started coming. Here's the answer. I'm going to give you this vision. I'm going to speak to you a word from God. Daniel, the answer is on its way. But I was actually resisted, Daniel. I couldn't get to you for three weeks. And the battle was so intense that I had to call Michael, the archangel, to come help me. So look what he says, verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what's to happen. Go down to verse 20. And he says, you know why I've come? But now I will turn to fight against the prince of Persia. This is angelic figure, okay? Get this in your mind. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to fight the one that I've been fighting before I got here. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. There's going to be another battle that I have to go through. I got to fight after I'm done with the prince of Persia. I'm going to have to go after the prince of Greece. But I'll tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. In other words, Daniel, but here's the good news. There's none who condemns by my side except these, but Michael, your prince. Now, Let's think about this for a moment. What, 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 what is going on? First of all, Daniel says there's a great conflict. Daniel, if you will, says, here's, here's the curtain of world events being pulled aside so that you can look through and really see what's going on. And there's something going on that is invisible to the naked eye. 
that unless it got unveiled to us, you would never see it. And he says, there are conflicts happening in the heavens of which the earthly conflicts are simply reflections. All that stuff that's happening in Jerusalem right now, Daniel, that's because there is this great conflict happening in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm, Daniel, that you can't see. But it's as real as you and me. Abraham Kuyper is famous. He was a Dutch theologian and academic and scholar, and he's famous for saying there's not one square inch in this universe over which Jesus is not proclaimed mine. Maybe some of you have heard this. But once he wrote about spiritual warfare, and he said this. He said, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsing, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. D-Day, nothing. Battle of the Bulge, nothing. I don't care. Name your battle. Nothing. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. That's where the real conflict happens. This is what's happening in our world. There is something going on behind the curtains that we cannot see. See, so the angel says, I've been battling. Daniel, I started coming, but there was this prince of Persia and I'm going to go back and I'm going to battle the prince of Persia again. And I'm going to battle the prince of Greece. And, and then, but, but Michael, your prince, Daniel, will come to my aid. Now, what is that? These are demonic and angelic beings. Now, there's no other way to look at this. This angelic being just showed up, just kind of, you know, here I am, Right? What happened to Daniel when he, when he saw him? He melted. Like, I, I can't even stand up in this guy's presence. This is not a real prince that, that, that he went and battled. You know, this is an angelic figure. There's no human being that can stand in front of this thing. So we're talking about spiritual wars going on. And it leads me to ask the question, so if there's a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and he says, Daniel, your prince, and by the way, the word your in verse 21 is plural, which means probably saying, Daniel, the prince, the, the overseeing angel for the people of God, or perhaps we'd say Israel is Michael. So all these princes, what's, if there's a prince of Israel and there's a prince of Persia, and there's a prince, is there a prince of the United States? Is there a prince of Ireland? Is there a prince of North Korea? Is there a prince of Syria? And I think the answer is absolutely there is. I think the Bible teaches that there are territorial spirits that oversee certain areas. Now, some of you are freaked out right now. Okay, just <laughs> hang with me, okay? I want to show you why I believe that, okay? But then I think I want to show you what should we do about that, right? Because these, these, these might be two different things, okay? Just, just so you just, just don't, don't, don't abandon me yet. Just, just hang with me, okay? So, so he says, he says, like, I, I think there's this prince of Persia. There's a prince of Greece. There's a prince over Israel or his people, whatever that means, right? There's, there's probably a prince over America. There are spiritual forces that are, that are charged with overseeing a territory, now, let me show you why I think that is. Let me give you a couple of reasons. There's more I could say about this, but I, I, I'll, I'll leave it with two simple things. Number one, Satan does, does not work in the world, does not operate haphazardly. Okay, I say this, and please hear how I say this. This is out of no love for Satan when I say he's brilliant. He is the greatest genius of God's creations, perhaps. He knows he is the best strategist. He is more, he's a better strategist than any military commander. He is, he is a, a better, you know, he, he runs a company better than any of the best companies in the world. He's organized, he plans, he schemes, he strategizes. That's the testimony of Scripture. 
So the Paul's going to say in, in Ephesians chapter 6, look, you better put on the whole armor of God. Why, Paul? So that you might stand against the devil's schemes. See, he's not just out there, oh, go, no, there's a fire over here. Put that out. Oh, no, problem over here. Let's, let's go there. No, he's going, you know what? I got, I got a plan. And I'm working that plan. And I'm strategizing. And I'm scheming against people. And I'm scheming against ethnicities. And I'm scheming against nations. And I am super organized in what I'm doing. Paul says, he says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we're not ignorant of Satan's designs. You see, you see how there's this idea. There, there's organization happening here. Now, if that's true, then I don't think it's a leap to believe that he's got limited forces and like any commander, he goes, you go over and play there and you there and you there. And you're over these territories and you do your job, right? Now, where would he get that from? Because then that, that's the second thing I want you to see is that several, there, are, there are several scriptures that I think hint at this idea of territorial uh, uh, spirit. So, so let, me, let me just kind of briefly show you what I mean. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And you can just write these down. I'm going to just go through them quickly. Moses. This is called the Song of Moses. And in there, he says this. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. What are they going to tell you? This. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples. Listen to this. How did he fix the borders? According to the number of the sons of God. Now, you're going to have a little footnote that tells you, well, it could read this way. And most scholars believe that's not the original. This is the original reading. According to the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? They're, they're spiritual beings. They're, they're angelic hosts. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? Uh, there's going to be a direct proportion, God says, between the nations of the earth and the angels that I've created. So now if that's God's strategy, it seems to me that Satan, sort of the great imitator, copycat, will say, well, great. Well, God's got that strategy. I'm going to do that. So if he's going to put those forces here, I'm going to put those forces here. Like any military commander, this is what he does. He's organized. Or how about, how about Mark chapter 5 and verse 10? This is a very interesting story where Jesus heals this man that has a demon. But it doesn't have one. The demon identifies himself as legion, meaning there's an enormous number, whatever it is, of demons that are inhabiting this man. Jesus, with a word, is going to command them to go. And fascinating, the demons plead with him in chapter 5, verse 10 of Mark and say they begged him earnestly, listen to this, not to send them out of the country. Now that's weird. Why? why? Could it be that this is their territory? Could it be that they had been assigned, like this is your region? And you, you, you do your greatest work right here. You, you vex these people. You oppose the plan of God. You do everything you can to oppose God's agenda in the world. And this is, this is what you oversee. Revelation chapter two, Jesus speaking to the angel of the church in Pergamum. He says this, I know where you dwell. This is Pergamum, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, Pergamum was infamous for its paganism, for its idolatry, right? There, there are things that went on in Pergamum. They, they had the imperial cult there. That is, they worshiped, you know, the Caesars. They, they, they worshiped them as gods. They had the temple of Zeus, the king of the gods. They worshiped a god called Asclepius, which was symbolized by a serpent and who's Satan in scripture. He's a serpent, Right? And so could it be that Pergamum at this time was a focal point for Satan's activity? So I think this is what's happening. There, there are these territorial spirits. Now, whatever else you think of that, what do, you, what do you do with this, right? If this is really true, okay, so Chris, I grant that to you. So what am I supposed to do? Or you know what? I don't agree with you. What am I supposed to do? 
Well, that's why I say I think these are these may be two different things. Let me let me let me tell you some things not to do and some things to do in light of what Daniel 10 is teaching us. Number one, first of all, don't dismiss the supernatural. Whatever else you want to think about this. If you take your Bible seriously, if you believe that the Bible is inerrant, if you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, then you have got some reconciling to do with the fact that there is something beyond what I can see right now, that if we were able to lift that curtain right there and say beyond that curtain is is the, the unseen realm, what you would see is a fantastic, horrifying battle scene. That there are things happening, swirling all around us all the time. The supernatural is real. There are angels. There are demons. There are battles happening in heavenly places. There are cosmic battles. This is what Paul says. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against authorities and cosmic powers, he says, over this present darkness. It's a spiritual reality. But second of all, I think you'd learn that demonic forces are strong, but God is stronger. Right? I mean, isn't that part of what Daniel's teaching us? Man, they resisted us. There are battles going on. But they didn't overcome. See, um, by the way, how do, we, how do we explain that there are some places in the world that seem to have an entrenched resistance to the gospel? We just go, well, that's just those people, right? Really? So there's some people that the gospel's for and some it's not? No, could it be that there really are demonic forces at play? Could it be that we haven't prayed and asked God to move and have his way and his will in those areas? I mean, what is it? We don't know. But it's certainly not just something we can explain with our, sort of our natural understanding of things. God is stronger. Here's this angel. I mean, if this, is, if this is a messenger of God, how strong is God? How awesome is he? Number three, here's what I want you to hear. Don't, don't pray to angels. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We, we, do, not, we, do, not, we do not pray that the angel Michael will come and please give us your aid. And oh, Gabriel, we ask you to come or anything like this. I mean, there used to be this book and it was a you know, fun book to read called This Present Darkness, Horrible Theology. But it was, it was a book that taught you, you know, sort of said, hey, there's this sort of spiritual realm out there happening and you'd, be, you'd have these people like, oh God, please arm your angels. And they would pray to angels and different things like that. That's not that you, Daniel never did that, did he? D- Daniel is not caught praying to angels. Oh God, I'm here on the bank of the Tigris and I pray that you'll send an angel. No, in fact, he's shocked, right? Like I didn't want this. I don't, I don't, I want him to go away because now he shows up in power. In fact, Clinton Arnold says it this way. Daniel had no idea of what was happening in the spiritual realm as he prayed. There's no indication that Daniel was attempting to discern territorial spirits. I wonder what, which one's over this territory. Nothing like that. He didn't pray against them or cast them down. In fact, Daniel only learned about what happened in the spiritual realm after the warring in heaven. God unveiled it to him for whatever reason. Because we don't pray to angels, but but we also don't don't make the the object, the singular focus of our prayers to, to, to cast out, to bind, or to evict spirits. Now, listen, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen. I believe that there are people that need demonic deliverance. I absolutely believe that. But that isn't our goal in prayer every time we go. I'm not trying to go, well, who's over this territory? I'm going to bind you, oh, you know, Prince of Glendora or whatever it is, right? (laughs) No, what do I do? I go to God. What motivated Daniel's prayer? It wasn't, you know what? I am, uh, I'm going to do battle with those princes over Persia and Greece and that sort of thing. No, what motivated him is God. You know what I do? I look out in the world and like Jesus, I go, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's not. And God, I pray that your kingdom will come. I pray your will will be done in Jerusalem as it is in heaven. I pray that it will be done here as it is in heaven. God, I see that your agenda is not working out the way that you designed in Scripture. And so, God, I pray against anything that would cause that to not come to pass. 
I pray for my family that way. I pray for my city that way. I pray for my country. I pray for the world that, Lord, your kingdom would come. Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that God is the focus of my prayer. Jesus is the one I put my hope in. And I think we put on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God. What is that, right? Put on the helmet of salvation, Paul says. Ephesians chapter 6, if you're wondering what I'm talking about. He says, take up the, the sword of the Spirit. Put on the breastplate of salvation. Put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, right? The belt of truth. This is what you should have on. What's he describing? I don't think he's saying, hey, every morning when you get up, just sort of pretend to put on a hat. <laughs> click, click, you know, sword. No, he's, I think he's describing Jesus. Be found in him. Walk in the spirit. Stay in close proximity. You are united to Christ. And Colossians 2 is gonna tell us this wonderful thing that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame triumphing over those rulers and authorities, those demons, those principalities, those powers in the cross. And so what do I do? I take shelter there. See, here's the thing. There's a real battle. There's a real battle. There's a battle for your soul. There's a battle for this country. There's a battle for the state. There's battles going on. The question isn't, okay, are those things happening? And so I'm not praying, oh God, I pray you arm angels and things like that. No, God, I'm gonna pray to you. I'm gonna leave it up to you how you use angels and what you do. But apparently my prayers matter. And I pray your will would be done. And I'm gonna come to you. There's this battle. Now here's really the question, whose side are you on? Which camp are you in? Well, I'm not on that demon side. Nobody wants to be there, right? The Bible's going to say, if you're not with Christ, you're against him. See, if you haven't affirmatively said, I'm in Christ, if you haven't affirmatively said, I put my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ, then I know you, you probably don't want to be part of that, that evil, you know, what's happening in the world, but he's saying, this is the camp you're in. And God will someday come and he will destroy and vanquish all evil. Which side are you on? Are you in the spirit? Are you walking with Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Daniel 10 makes us ask really ultimate questions. Which side am I on? I pray it's on the side of Christ, the one who will vanquish it all. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for this sobering, encouraging word from Daniel 10. Um, God, there's... Some of us would be tempted to make too much of this and, and so we would you know, find ourselves maybe calling out to angels instead of calling out to the powerful one who sends the angels, instead of looking to Jesus, the one who vanquished, who, who, who disarmed rulers and authorities. It would keep us from understanding that God, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord not angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. None of those things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so I pray we would be found in you, unseparatable from your love. And do that today, God. Encourage our hearts that our prayers matter. Our prayers move gears in heaven. Our prayers, we pray in a, Apparently, angels go to war. And we not become fixated on that. We become fixated on knowing you and seeing your will done in our world. Help us, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the promise of Scripture. We thank you for the encouragement of it. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.